If you were Jesus, I know that's not so easy to imagine, but just try for a moment. If you were Jesus and you were going to pick just one image or one thing to sum up what you came to do, what would you choose? A cross, maybe? A symbol of sacrificial death? Or maybe you'd pick an empty tomb, a symbol of resurrection life. Well, the real Jesus did choose one image to sum up what he came to do. And he didn't choose a cross or an empty tomb. He chose the best wine. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus performs a series of signs. That's what John calls them. And each of the signs reveals something about Jesus' significance. These are not random conjuring tricks that Jesus does. They each point to some aspect of the life that he brings. And our passage this morning deals with the very first of those signs. And because it's the first, it has special significance. It lays the foundation and it sets the context for the rest of the signs that will come after. So with that in mind, let's turn to John chapter 2. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1064. And in the larger print Bibles, 1649. John chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 1 to 11. But just to remind you, in the last section of chapter 1, Jesus promised that those who follow him will see heaven open. Meaning, to be with Jesus is to benefit from all that heaven has to offer. That was the end of chapter 1. And immediately after hearing that promise from Jesus, we read in chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day... A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs 
through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. But I wonder what your first reaction was as we read this. How did it strike you first off? I think for a lot of us, the story initially strikes us like this. Jesus' mom asks him to help out. He refuses, and in fact, he's a bit grumpy with her. But then he decides to do something special to make it up to her. It might seem like that the first time we read it. But we probably suspect that actually there's a bit more to it than that. From what we've heard about Jesus in chapter 1, we might suspect that our initial reaction to the story isn't quite doing justice to what's really happening here. So let's look at this more closely. In verse 1, John tells us this incident took place on the third day, meaning the third day after the end of chapter 1, when Jesus met Nathanael and when he spoke about seeing heaven open. And John might include this detail about the third day for no particular reason. But already as we've looked at just chapter 1, we're beginning to notice John is pretty careful and pretty selective about the details he chooses to include. There aren't many superfluous details in John's gospel. Most of the details are included for a reason. Very often when John includes something, he's aiming to show a connection either with another part of his own book or with another part of the Bible. So here, why might he bother to tell us this event took place on the third day? Well, I can't prove this, but I think there may be a connection back to the beginning of the Bible. In the very first words of his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, John quoted the first words of the first chapter of the Bible, in the beginning. And the point was, Jesus was there at the beginning. Jesus is not part of creation, he is Lord of creation. Through him, all things were made. That's what John went on to tell us. So we've already had a connection with Genesis chapter 1. And if we were to read on in that chapter, we would discover that on the third day of creation, God made the world fruitful. It was on the third day he created vegetation, plants and trees that bear fruit. So here in John chapter 2, maybe John bothers to tell us this incident happened on the third day because he wants us to think back to the very first third day. And to recognize Jesus created fruit-bearing plants in the first place. Jesus has form when it comes to working with the fruit of the vine. In any case, three days after Jesus met Nathanael, he goes to a wedding with his new disciples, the ones we were introduced to last week. And John tells us in verse 1, Jesus' mother was there as well, Mary. It may may well be this is the wedding of a relative. Certainly Mary seems to feel some sense of responsibility for the wedding going well. That suggests she's closely involved with what's going on. 
And what's going on isn't going well at all. Verse 3 says the wine was gone. And what we need to realize is in this culture at this time, that was a shameful thing. It was shameful for the bridegroom. It was his responsibility to provide food and drink for his guests. And to provide it for a celebration that would normally last a few days. And so it was a big deal if he failed in his responsibility to his guests. If he left them high and dry when it came to the catering. That would make a big dent in his reputation. And Mary, who is fully aware of this, goes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. What is she expecting when she tells him this? Well, clearly she expects him to do something about it. Our passage last week mentioned Joseph, Jesus' human father. But the last recorded appearance of Joseph in the New Testament was when Jesus was 12 years old. It's almost certain that by this point, Joseph is dead. And over the years, Mary has come to rely on her oldest son, Jesus. So here, it's natural for her to take this problem to him. So far, so good. But it's what comes next that might not seem to sit very well with what we already know about Jesus. When Mary goes to him with the problem, he says in verse 4, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. If I called my mom woman, even at this stage, I could probably expect a clip round the ear. But actually, despite how it sounds to our ears today, the term Jesus uses here is not rude. In fact, in the final moments of his life, Jesus uses this term again as he speaks to his mother from the cross. You can look that up later in chapter 19. In those moments of his greatest agony, he shows his concern that Mary will be cared for after his death. There's no coldness or harshness from Jesus. Not then, at the end of his life, nor here at the beginning of his ministry. One commentator has suggested we might get the sense of this better if we translated it, dear woman. But, at the same time, while Jesus is not at all being rude to his mother, he is making it clear she does not set the agenda for his life. He cares for her deeply. He shows that even in his moments, moments of deepest suffering. But he is still Lord of the universe. And he is working to a bigger agenda than the one Mary has for him. Yes, she is his mother. But he is still her Lord. And he cannot be strong-armed by anyone, even by his mother. But what does Jesus mean in verse 3 when he says, my hour has not yet come? Well, if he means, I'm not going to get involved here, 
then it's a bit strange that he does get involved pretty much immediately. Well, this phrase, my hour or the hour, crops up quite a few other times in John's gospel. It's always referring to Jesus' death and what follows after his death. The hour or my hour is a way of speaking about that event and what that event achieved. So if that's what my hour means, why does Jesus mention it here? He's indicating that what he is about to do is both a response to the immediate situation at the wedding and it is a sign of what he's going to achieve when his hour does come. Jesus is saying, what you are about to see me do is just a little anticipation. It's just a little foretaste of what I will do when my hour comes. So don't think that what you're about to see is all there is to this. My hour has not yet come. But when it does, you will see the reality that's just being foreshadowed here. How does Mary respond to these words from Jesus? Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Did Mary fully understand what Jesus was saying? Probably not. Did she know what he was about to do? Probably not. But she is absolutely sure he's the one who can help. She trusts him. And she tells the servants to trust him too. She has brought the situation to him. And now she leaves it with him, relying on him to do what's best. In this whole incident, Mary only says two things. To Jesus, she says in verse 3, they have no more wine. And to the servants in verse 5, she says, do whatever he tells you. Just two sentences. But they sum up the attitude of a believer. Whatever the problem is, bring it to Jesus then do whatever he tells you. Mary shows us Jesus is the one to rely on for your everyday details and your lasting joy. No wine at the wedding is an everyday detail. That's what Mary has brought to Jesus. But Jesus' answer has increased the stakes. Jesus has pointed to the fact that he's working on a much bigger project than sorting out the catering at family functions. Jesus is headed for the hour when he will sort out infinitely greater issues. And to understand how wine relates to those infinitely greater issues, we have to think about the way wine is used in the Bible. I realize that among us here this morning, there will be different attitudes to wine and the use of wine, and I'm not intending to enter into that debate this morning, but we do need to see what the Bible says about wine and what significance it gives to wine. There are three main angles on wine in the Bible, 
First, there are lots of warnings against overindulgence. Drunkenness is condemned in the Bible repeatedly. For example, Proverbs chapter 23 says, do not join those who drink too much wine. That leads to woe, sorrow, and strife. And the New Testament repeats those warnings. Then the second way wine is used in the Bible is as a symbol of God's judgment. In the ancient world, the way juice was extracted from grapes was by dumping the grapes into a vat, a big bath essentially, called a wine press. Then the lads and lasses would kick off their shoes, jump into the wine press, and they would keep jumping till the grapes had been squashed to a pulp which would then flow out of a hole in the wine press to be collected and turned into wine. And in the book of Revelation, that image of grapes being trampled is used as a picture of God's judgment. Revelation chapter 14 speaks about the great wine press of God's wrath. It speaks about those who refuse to worship God having to drink the wine of God's fury. So the Bible has warnings against overindulgence in wine. It uses the winemaking process to picture God's terrible wrath. But the third way the Bible speaks about wine is the one that's significant for our passage. When the Bible speaks about God's blessing and the prosperity he gives, it often speaks about it as an abundance of wine. In those contexts, wine is seen as a source of joy. So Psalm 104 says, wine gladdens human hearts. That's not contradicting the warnings about wine that we noticed a moment ago. It's just acknowledging wine is often a part of human celebrations and feasts. And when the Bible looks forward to God's Messiah... And the blessing and joy he'll bring, it pictures that joy and blessing in terms of feasting and wine. We could look at lots of different examples, but earlier this morning we read from Isaiah chapter 25, a passage which points to the future when the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On Sunday evenings recently, Steve is taking us through the book of Amos. And if you've been here, you'll know that's a book that has lots of warnings about judgment. But the end of Amos' prophecy looks ahead to restoration and blessing from God. Amos says at the end of his prophecy... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. As I said, we could look at lots of similar examples. And as early on as the book of Genesis, this future blessing was all tied to the Lord's Messiah. He was the one who would bring this joyful blessing, symbolized 
by the best of meats and the finest of wines. So maybe now we begin to see what Jesus is about to do at this wedding in Cana of Galilee shows he is the one to rely on for your everyday details and your lasting joy. What he's about to do will sort an everyday detail for his mother and her embarrassed relative. It will do that, but to anyone who cares to pay attention, what Jesus is about to do will also signal something else. He's the one who provides lasting joy. The joy described in the Old Testament as a banquet of wine. Look at verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Back in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, we were told the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's no disrespect to Moses. The law was a thoroughly good thing. It was a precious gift from God. But the point is that in comparison to what Jesus brings, the law is a much lesser gift. And here in verse 6, when John points out that the water jars were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, when we read that, it's hard not to see it as a little reminder. What Jesus brings is so much better than the rituals and ceremonies that went before. And sure enough, Jesus delivers not just decent wine, but the best wine. Literally, the good wine. That's according to the master of the banquet, or the head waiter, we might call him today, in verse 10. Jesus provides the best wine, and he provides a huge amount of it. According to the figures in verse 6, somewhere between 480 to 720 liters, or 106 to 158 gallons. Now, depending on the size of the wedding, that's either an abundance of wine or a superabundance of wine. Either way, it's more than what's needed. And as we've seen, according to the taste buds of the head waiter, it's not average wine, it's the good stuff. So in the immediate situation here, the bridegroom is saved from the embarrassment and the humiliation of having a badly catered wedding. And much more significantly, Jesus has announced himself as the one who delivers God's joy and fullness and satisfaction. And as verse 11 points out, this was the first of Jesus' signs. 
The way he chose to begin revealing his glory and his significance was by providing a celebration. A lavish wedding feast. What Jesus does at this wedding shows us who he is. He's the one who provides the best. Now and forever. Is that how you think of Jesus? Is that how you see him? This is how he wants us to see him. Because this is the heart of who he is. Yes, it's vital that we see him as our savior from sin. The lamb of God who died in our place. It's just as vital that we see him as our great high priest. Who intercedes for us as our advocate in heaven. Later in John's gospel, Jesus will describe himself as the righteous judge of the earth. That's also a vital understanding of Jesus. We need to see those aspects of who he is. But as his first public sign of his glory, Jesus chose to reveal himself as the one who delivers the best wine. And you and I need to let that set the tone for our own thoughts about Jesus. No one gives us joy like the joy Jesus gives us. Nothing can satisfy us like Jesus can. No celebration can match the celebration Jesus invites us to. No experience can compete with the experience of knowing Jesus. If you're a Christian, do you believe that? If you don't, could it be because you're seeking your ultimate joy in other places and other people? C.S. Lewis said, we are far too easily pleased. He said, we're like children who go on making mud pies when we've been offered a holiday at the seaside. As Christians, we can be like that. We can have this idea that we need Jesus for salvation, but the real joy, the good stuff, well, we have to look elsewhere for that. But right here, Jesus says loud and clear, don't be fooled into thinking that way. I provide the best now and forever. There's no greater joy than the joy I can give you. There's no deeper satisfaction than the satisfaction you'll find in me. And if you are not seeing that today, is it because you're not looking to Jesus for your joy and satisfaction? Is it because you're focusing on your own mud pies? Whatever those are for you, maybe making more money, 
having more exciting experiences, buying better stuff, being more popular, building the perfect family. Whatever your personal mud pies are, Jesus asks you and he asks me, are you missing out on satisfaction with me because you're looking for satisfaction in those things instead? Now we need to be clear, there, there's no promise here that with Jesus every circumstances of our lives will turn sweet and every difficulty will go away. No, this is a promise that even in difficulties, even in bitter circumstances, Jesus provides a joy and satisfaction that goes deep. So deep, it cannot be destroyed and it cannot be stolen away by difficulties and circumstances. Maybe you're having trouble believing that then bring that trouble to Jesus. Tell him your need. Tell him that other things look more appealing and more promising right now for you. Ask him to help you rely on him. Both for your everyday details and for your lasting joy. Ask him in his love to let you experience your joy and satisfaction in him. Do you think he would deny you when you ask him for that? Do you think the one who died for you will turn you away when you sincerely ask him for that? Of course he won't. That's why he performed this sign at Cana in Galilee. So you and I would come to him as the Messiah who provided a wedding with the best wine. We, we can begin to know him in that way even today, even in really tough times. And one day, we will enter into his own eternal wedding feast. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, speaks about the wedding supper of the Lamb. An eternal celebration where God's people enjoy his presence and his provision forever. The bridegroom at that feast will be Jesus himself. His people will be his bride. And the foretaste of joy that we experience here and now will turn into perfect joy. So if you are not a Christian, just consider what you're missing. Jesus offers you more and better joy than anything else can give you. Let go of your mud pies and turn to him. The satisfaction that he offers cannot be torn away from you. Whatever you go through in life. And if you are a Christian, 
Do you need to see Jesus in a new way today? As the one who has a feast of joy for you? The one who, when giving the primary sign of who he is, chose to deliver the best wine at a wedding. Let's pray. Father, we know that what we're speaking about here is not a light thing. When we meet on Good Friday, we'll hear about Jesus' final feast with his disciples before he went to the cross. We know it cost him an incredible price to offer us eternal joy. In order to do that, he first had to drink the bitter wine of your wrath and judgment. We realize this is not a light thing. But Father, help us not to be so solemn and so sober that we shy away from enjoying life with our Savior. Help us not to undervalue the satisfaction he offers and the celebration he calls us to. Will you help us look to him for our joy, both now and in the future? Will you show us he offers so much more than any other source of joy? We ask you for these things in his name. Amen. Our next song is one that we don't sing very often, but we probably should. It picks up on what we've seen this morning, the truth that Jesus provides us with a feast, the greatest feast. We'll sing the trumpet's sign, the angels sing, and then when I was lost.
Jesus has prepared a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Jesus will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Jesus will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Amen.